You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. I had a lot of fun in the past three episodes sharing my conversations with the great work being done on the ground in Tasmania. It is local people doing local things on local scales to which the post-growth movement is all about. Luckily, many of you agreed with the overall sentiment, with the response to the Tasmanian Perspectives episodes so positive that the month of May enjoyed the highest number of listens in PGAP history. The growing movement for local cooperative communities and simpler living is up against the terrifying brick wall of the current social and economic predicaments. Victorians, for example, are reeling from the latest lockdown, putting further pressure on small businesses and personal finances as the federal government does what it can to repeal social welfare. Meanwhile, the government is desperately trying to kickstart economic growth via the housing market, whilst seemingly desperate to price everyone under 40 out of the housing market through exponentially rising house prices. It makes me wonder, in 10 years' time, when a two-bedroom in Sejuna costs several million dollars and a crippling intergenerational loan, who is going to be the last fool to buy in for this kind of shit? And how will the move-on laws work on at least three generations' worth of homeless Australians? Meanwhile, the desperate drive to construct new dwellings via the Morrison government's home builder program has created an excess in demand for timber, creating a supply shortage because, guess what, the rest of the world is also trying to save the remains of their growth economies through construction. A perfect storm is what one news article described this. It was suggested to me that the industry could merely substitute timber fixtures to metal fixtures, but what happens when the rest of the world substitutes to dwindling supplies of finite metals? Given that three-quarters of the non-Arctic world has already been modified to suit the human growth experiment, isn't a much more logical alternative simply to just stop building, make do with the billions of acres we've already paved over, and just bloody stop growing? Also, in a further case of Stockholm Syndrome, the Nationals have now just reinstated Barnaby Joyce as a leader of the Nationals again, the shopping list of past transgressions, all forgiven apparently, Jesus wept. If I sound like I'm in a dour mood, <laughs> perhaps a gloomy palette set by my most recent interviews on PGAP have merely set a precedent. Therefore, it is timely in a number of ways that I had the utter honour of interviewing one of my life heroes, Ted Trainer from the Simplicity Institute. It is timely because Ted has been a vocal advocate for limits to growth since the 1970s and Ted brings his decades of activism to reflect on a movement that from his perspective has grown from strength to strength. This has provided him with a sense of cautious yet infectious optimism that really shows during this interview. Ted also pulls together a broad-scale argument for systemic change explaining the big picture framework of which we saw local examples taking place throughout the Tasmanian Perspective interviews. As a long-term campaigner for The Simple Way, he is passionate that voluntary simplicity is not about individual sacrifice, frugality and deprivation. Rather, it is about systemic change away from the centralised capitalist systems towards self-sufficient, self-organising local communities. However, Ted can explain things much better than I can. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ted Trainer from the Simplicity Institute. Really, really very excited to be talking to Ted Trainer, and I think anyone who's been involved in um, degrowth or post-growth uh, over the last several decades uh, would be very familiar with the name Ted Trainer. So how are you today, Ted? Good, Michael. 
happy to talk to you. And I've read several of your um, books, I think several years ago. I know you don't like personal questions, but we'll just start off with what was a light bulb um, moment for you to focus on simplicity or or the simple way? Uh, Just a process of um, thinking about the world. But I guess the one person who really influenced me most would be Paul Ehrlich. The Limits to Growth, the book, came in the in 72. Um, but it just seemed to me that anybody who was concerned about our society and where we're going and the environment um, would have got onto these themes. But uh, unfortunately, um, they didn't attract anything like the attention they deserve till, I guess, um, the eco-village movement, transition towns, a bit more late, late than that, and um, especially the the emergence of the degrowth movement. So the scene now is terrific. It's really coming on very fast. It's become a more of a mainstream issue, I think, to talk about alternatives to growth and people are starting to really grasp the fact that infinite growth on a finite planet, <laughs> you know, it's it's got a little bit of an end point. So tell us a little bit more about the ideas around the Simple Way and the Simplicity Institute. What are the uh, main thrusts of, of that? They are both focused on the extent to which we've overshot the limits to growth. Um, most people haven't got a clue about how serious the problems are. We all know there are problems, but um, our first task is to try and get across just how bad we the situation we're in is. And in a minute, I'd like to try and sketch out that argument. The implications are profound um, we just have to face up to um, the growth of a very great degree, um, something like a factor 10 reduction in the per capita consumption rates of people in rich countries. There's no chance that technical advance can do that. The only way we can get those resource demands and impacts down is by dramatically changing our lifestyles and systems. So we've got a lot to say about that Um, and that's the second major issue that I I hope we can come to and that is the form that a sustainable alternative society might take. That's what we put under the heading of the simpler way. And the third big element in this discussion has to then be transition. What? How might we make the transition to those required alternatives? My outlook is a mixture of considerable pessimism and optimism. I think our situation is very dire and we are, we are, I think, inevitably in for descent into a time of great troubles which will see the destruction of many things, many systems. On the other hand, the rate at which alternative thinking and projects is coming on is so surprisingly good that um, we have a good chance of getting through. But I do think we're in for some decades of uh, considerable difficulty and it's all hands to the pump. We have to try through the sort of thing you're doing in this recording, get as many people as possible to come on board and help with the business of changing the, the worldview and the mentality. In terms of the um, pessimism, what are the key factors um, for you that we've overshot? For me, it's um, the fact that the built world now exceeds the biomass in terms of volume, the fact that we're running out of the good sands in order to build all the upturned concrete um, apartments and also the fact that humans and livestock are about what, 96% of the vertebrate biomass and wild animals are about 4%. Um, so what what are some key signs for you that we are definitely in overshoot? Yes, look, you've mentioned a number of crucial things, but the list is very long um, on so many environmental and resource fronts and indeed social welfare in the sense of social cohesion. So many dimensions, we're just going down the, the wrong way at an accelerating rate. Let me just focus on a couple of main lines of argument which we think are absolutely crucial in 
explaining the, the magnitude. The, the issue here is the magnitude of the overshoot. The World Wildlife Fund has a, a measure called footprint index, many people will be familiar with. If you look at the amount of productive land we Australians use per capita on average, it's about six to eight hectares of good land to provide our food and settlement and so on. Now, if all the world's people were likely to have by 2050, that's more than 9 billion, were to live like we Australians do now, we'd need uh, 9 by 763 billion hectares of productive land. Well, I'm sorry, but there are only about 8 billion hectares of productive land we could get access to. So there's a multiple of 8 to 10 to 1 that we are living in ways which require resources of that multiple of what all could have if we shared the available resources equally. Now, there are other lines of argument like that which come to worse multiples. For minerals, it's much worse. That's just the beginning of the argument. The next point to consider is growth. It's not a problem of whether everyone could live the way we do now. It's a question of whether everyone could live the way we would be living in 2050 if we have the same rate of economic growth we have now till then. And then the multiple becomes over 20. And so you realise you're into a situation that is not just absurd but suicidal. Um, We have to move, we have to undertake a process of degrowth which gets the per capita resource use rates down by that sort of fraction if you're serious about all this. Now, you might say, well, uh, can't we go on growing all right? Uh, Why consider everybody coming to our living standards? Well, firstly, that's a gigantic moral problem. Secondly, it's a prudential problem in the sense that you're in for a lot of trouble if you try and do that. Whether you like it or not, that's where the world is going. Everybody's committed to that sort of growth level and development for the third world is defined in terms of them coming up to our levels. Now, you just got to face up to that, whether you like it or not, and ask yourself, where will we be in, you know, a mere 30 years or so uh, if we go on down that path? So to summarise, that predicament of overshoot, of grotesque unsustainability, is the direct cause of all the major global problems. It's depleting resources. It's wrecking the environment on many fronts. Like you say, even sand now is a problem, let alone the taking of all the the forests in Indonesia to make palm oil for your cosmetics and so on. It's also depriving the third world of a fair share of its global resources. It's generating resource struggles and warfare because of the struggles to get access to resources. And the obsession with growth and affluence and the priority that governments give that is detracting from depleting the social resources that are going into our quality of life and our social cohesion. The biggest illness problem now we have in rich countries is probably depression. And we could talk at great length about the causal mechanisms between the obsession with growth and affluence and the way resources are not going into building cohesive communities. So that's a a summary of of the argument and a a stress on the magnitude of the change that we have to face up to. We believe the alternatives are not just there, but in theoretical terms quite simple And we believe they not only would defuse those great problems, but would actually liberate us to a higher quality of life. What are the shortcomings of what the environmental movement often presents? Like, for example, the Greens and the Green New Deal. Um, It's often kind of posited as that's the main uh, route to save us by transitioning to all renewables, but um, what what are the shortcomings of putting all the eggs in that one basket? Look, it is terrific that things like the Green New Deal and even the green growth people, they're on the scene and they weren't. I've been in this game a long time and I can recall decades of slugging away 
with a few of us and, and nobody taking the slightest bit of notice. At least now these issues are on the agenda and the Green New Deal sort of people uh, realise that something's got to be done. The major problem a lot of green movements have is the, the residual faith in technical fixes, recycling, um, better ways of doing things, would, they think would allow us to go on living in affluent ways in a growth economy. That's just not at all feasible. The, the main line of argument there now is to do with the decoupling thesis. There's the, the general text fix uh, faith is that we can separate economic growth and affluence from resource use and ecological impact that by technical advance we can go on getting richer and richer and define third world development as them coming up to our level while we at the same time dramatically reduce the impacts and resource use. Now, that thesis has been blown right out of the water by a number of extremely detailed reviews. Uh, one has got 300 references and the other has actually got 800 coming out in the last couple of years. And they find conclusively that despite all the efforts to do things more efficiently and implement technical advance, there is no de no significant decoupling happening. Um, there are in specific areas, so some things are being achieved. But overall, if economic growth goes up, so do the impacts. And we are not likely at all to do anything about that. There is now no escape from facing up to dramatic degrowth as what we have to do. Okay, if the alternative is all of us looking at simple ways of living, um, I'm reminded of the time of the when I saw a video of Alan Watts, a Zen philosopher, uh, in, in the early 70s saying that, you know, he'd been met with environmentalists and they're all like, we're doing, we're doing, we're busy, we're busy, we're solving the problem and the problem still persists. But one of the great things, um, I suppose, coming out in degrowth is, is about um, doing less and in particularly um, working less hours, less moving yourself about. And so if that's a segue or, or, or link into simplicity, not being about techno fixes and more, but kind of winding back and that idea that less is more. Yes, the the obvious huge problem we've got is that as soon as you start talking about simplicity, simpler ways and so on, people recoil in horror thinking that this is asking us to move to um, a frugality of a harmful sort and put up with hardship and deprivation in order to save the planet. As we go on in a little while, I hope I can make clear that we have no doubt this is about liberation from the stupid rat race we're in of self-destruction and indeed tormenting ourselves with too much work and, as I said before, a stressful way of life that involves a great deal of depression. When we detail the sorts of alternatives that we're saying we could move to, I think it becomes clear that it is indeed about liberation to a higher quality of life. For example, how would you like a way of life in which we have to work for money two days a week? And that's all. Now, that's a very realistic proposition. We're saying that if we cut out all the unnecessary consumption and more importantly, the resource-expensive systems we have, like our agriculture involves a vast amount of tractors, transport, shipping, advertising, packaging, waste and so on, that we can just we can almost entirely eliminate by moving to systems of a different kind. And just take the sewer systems for another example. They're absolutely ridiculous because they're soil mining. You take nutrients out of the ground, put them through kitchens and toilets, and you throw them all away. Now, that's just so grossly unsustainable. If you have a localised agriculture, you close that loop entirely and you can have almost a, a, a total recycling of nutrients from gardens to kitchens 
the toilets to garbage gas units, compost heaps and food again going round and round. And so you can see that that's a system change which gets rid of uh, ways which are terribly resource expensive. So it's not just lifestyle change, it's system change. And, and my argument is that those ways are, can make an enormous difference to the amount of resource use we have and in the same, at the same time greatly improve the quality of life because you get no enjoyment out of agribusiness, which is a long way away. But if the farms are close by, you can go and chat to the animals, have your holidays on the farm, get on your bike and go there for an afternoon. So there are all sorts of side benefits from the alternative way. And that's a long-winded way of me saying, look, this is not about deprivation and hardship. It's about moving to ways of life which are more enjoyable. The one key thing, though, that you have to face up to, that it is indeed about moving to frugality. We we cannot consume as much as we do now, but there are alternative things to do. One of the main things we'll have in our new communities is a leisure, leisure committee, constantly working at how do we... Uh, find more uh, activities, we guest speakers, uh, community concerts and stuff, things like that. So, again, what we're about is a, a, a much richer, it's a simpler way in, in the material sense, but in cultural and quality of life terms, we would insist it's, it's a much richer way of life. So in, in a little while, I hope we can get in a bit more detail that fills out why that's the case. I, I like to explore what does it, day-to-day life might look for someone um, what would they uh, what would change for them when they get up at the start of the day um, and what might we expect to lose and what might we expect to gain so for for one example for me um, in a simpler way of being it's it'd be a lot more difficult to travel in terms of ferrying yourself from you know one state to another one side of the world to another because of the energy costs of transport but what you gain is um an appreciation of where you are and um more time to have uh you know stronger relationships with neighbors and others in your community is that is that a fair call? <laughs> yeah, yes, you're, you're right, completely correct there, that it is about substituting um, and finding alternative sources of life satisfaction and value. Um, and and I must say that travel is one of the things that um, people would find most difficulty with. We've become used to jetting around the world. I think there are a million people in the air at any one time um, but again, I would stress that it's about finding and developing alternative ways. Your, your actual settlement would be a very resource-rich place with lots of things in it. Compare the average neighbourhood in our cities. They're just leisure deserts. There's very little there that's to be done. And neighbours very often don't even know each other. It's important to say a bit about the structures that we envisage um, in our new settlements. Um, now, we're talking very much about localism. We're talking about most people living in re- pretty small communities, um, which can be side by side with many others. Think about transforming our suburbs in our cities into communities which are highly integrated, self-sufficient. Country towns are in the best position to do all this, but but you can do the same thing in cities. And the transition towns movement is a very good example of of efforts to do this. It's, it's uh, going pretty elaborately in Stroud and Bristol and so on in Britain. And there are uh, movements in Australia of that kind. Um, so I think in those terms, we're not... Uh, radically, immediately changing the whole world in difficult ways. We're gradually transforming the places in which we live to be new, local, highly self-sufficient, very collectivist and very self-governing communities. Now, you cannot, in the long run, do this stuff in this economy. This is a growth economy. 
and it's driven by the market and it's driven by profit seeking you can still have elements of the market in the new ways we're envisaging but you cannot cannot have a society that's driven by the profit system and the market and above all by growth it must be about degrowth so think about smaller scale communities which have town meetings they have committees working bees i calculated that for my local suburb if we had two hours a week from the adults and the older children going into community working bees we would have 3000 hours a week of work going into maintaining and improving our neighborhood now that is so much more than you'd ever get out of councils at the moment there are many opportunities like that come up if you move to uh, more localism and more collectivist community um, procedures you can still have a market sector it is my firm belief that most of the little farms and enterprises should be privately owned they should be family run now it may be that some communities would want to collectivize more than that but it is not about saying you've all got to have the state running everything this position is very much against centralized control um mainly because the state the center cannot do these things they have to be done by local communities they're the only ones who know the local ecosystems climates and food and soil and stuff and they're the ones who have to do the work because um in a world of degrowth you won't have agri business with all that energy intensive stuff you won't have states with vast budgets and energy budgets we local people will have to do the the planting and the um water catchment systems and all of that now within that the lifestyle changes open up you can see that you could be spending as i've said before most of your week not working for money much of that would be on working bees and doing things spontaneously just by seeing all oh, that taps leaking down in the park we'll fix it in other words not relying on a distant council but what community full of citizens who are responsible energetic concerned about the town and will automatically look after many many of the problems the bigger problems might go to the energy committee the youth committee and especially that leisure committee so you get the impression of a way of life which involves you in lots of interactions with a with a very rich and supportive community and m- much of your purpose in life could come from involvement in and concern with that community making sure it's kept in good shape as well as being close to people who are experts in all sorts of things like lots of artists and craft people and people who've got four days a week to spend studying astronomy and uh, genetics and so on so you can learn all sorts of things from those people uh, we're not talking about giving up on high tech stuff uh, or professions professionals and the training and universities there's no need whatsoever to cut back on any of that uh, a lot of it we don't need because it's researching better advertising techniques if we reduce reduce the unnecessary silly wasteful stuff we have vastly more resources to put into socially desirable research and development so that's uh, an introduction to some of the ways in which i would say my claim that your quality of life could be much higher in a rich environment uh, is a valid claim and you would realize that your quality of life and your welfare depend not on your personal wealth or talent or entrepreneurial skill but on the richness of your town and your environment and those systems like if the leisure committee does a good job we have terrific weekend concerts and dances and outings and so on and so then you don't need to fly to byron bay <laughs> in order to get all that i guess when we're looking at all 
scales of the transition, um, you know, individual change and making individual changes is so important. But as you said, also systemic changes. And one of the real challenges I've des- I've observed from living in Melbourne and in other areas of Australia, you know, there have been so many community initiatives in the transition towns, in having house shares to the retrofitting model to community gardens to intentional communities and so often um, you end up hitting against the brick wall of the growth economy you know you can have a community gardens but it's constantly under threat from you know a property developer um, drinking some Penfolds Granger the politician and, and suddenly it's developed for apartments my observations yes the individual changes are so important but there needs to be a lot of work done in order for that work to not be threatened or appropriated or literally paved over? Yes, look, um, it's useful to think in terms of two stages in this revolution. We've only just started in stage one. The big structural changes cannot come till much later and they cannot come unless we achieve a great deal in stage one in in the sense of a cultural revolution. These things depend entirely on the extent to which new ideas and values are held. And we're in the business now with all those things you mentioned of changing ideas, outlooks, uh, mentalities. Um, and all, all of those little efforts, even if that community garden you've put your time into gets wiped out by a conventional development, just realise that what you've done is contribute to the raising of the cultural awareness and change. You've you've helped to introduce ideas like the big systems we have are not working well, they're fundamentally flawed, and we've pioneered alternative ways just a little bit and we've added to the climate of opinion which someday will get to be big enough to make those structural change. You've got to think in terms of things like the Berlin Wall, which suddenly crashed, came down. But that's because for years discontent was building up and alternative ideas and and desires were accumulating to the point where crashed, the the wall went down. That's the process that we're involved in. I can look back a long way. I am just stunned at how... In the last 20 years or less, the alternative ideas have come on so rapidly, they're accelerating. I see it as a race between the destruction and decay that we're sliding down into, on the one hand, and the the acceleration of these good things. And a lot of the time I think, yeah, we will make it. Well, great. There's there's the optimism there. I'd love to <laughs> hear it. So um, in the meantime, you know, we've all got some individual choices that we can make in, in terms of, you know, we've got all these toys and consumables that are laid out in front of us and um, we all have choice of how much we buy into that or <laughs> literally or how much um, we don't. You know, those graphs where it outlines all the individual changes you can make in your life and how many how much carbon you save like I think I, I thought um changing your diet and being veganism was one of the big ones but apparently that's 0.8 of a, a a ton over your lifetime and then having one less child is um something like between 50 and 60 so in those graphs anyway um having one less child seems to trump all the other choices i suppose is that an accurate reflection and and to further inquire you know us living in higher consumable countries until all of society is at a stage where we're all consuming a lot less anyway is making the choice to have smaller families is is that a valid option um so long as you you know you're not justifying having less children as an excuse to double your consumption or something yes look all of those lifestyle changes um there is a, a considerable movement a voluntary simplicity movement so on they are all admirable noble but they're not the main game. The major thing that we can all do and should be doing 
is simply trying to spread these ideas um, and, and raise awareness that alternatives of this kind are happening. We get nowhere till till most people understand and accept those ideas. So it's a mistake to think you have to affect your own lifestyle in a negative way and put up with deprivation as a the contribution that needs to be made. By me, all means do those things, but please put most of your energy into those ways you can think of that might spread these ideas. Now, talking is the most obvious way. Nag people, and whenever you get the chance to raise these issues, do so. A step above that is joining into some of these groups that are working on alternative ways, like community gardens, but make sure they're seen not as in entertaining pleasant escapes but as devices for spreading the ideas so when you're in the community gardens put up display boards and invite visitors in and school groups and so on to show them not just a nice garden but to explain more collective cooperative ways explain how our neighborhoods could be altered so that you're introducing the idea of structural changes in the long run Further down that dimension is the business of towns taking control of themselves. Now, this is what the transition towns movement's trying to do. Some of them are trying to form councils, sometimes alternatives to the main council, but sometimes within the main main council, which are focused on how can we build a new economy here that's of the right kind, more self-sufficient, more local, more focused on needs, um, independent of the the normal conventional uh, economy. So uh, the, you have to focus in the longer run, and some of us get opportunities here and now to be involved in doing things which are quite different from lifestyle changes. Now, let me try and quickly say a bit about the most inspiring thing of this kind that I know, and that's the Catalan Integral Cooperative in Spain. These are people who now have several thousand people involved in their own alternatives, many, many cooperatives producing huge amounts of food, moving to their own distribution centres. They have their own welfare systems. They have unemployment agencies. They have educational establishments. It's just astounding what they've done. And their two major principles are to have nothing whatsoever to do with the capitalist market system and to have nothing whatsoever to do with the state. So it's it's not a socialist alternative uh, of the kind that normally comes to mind when you use that term. It is indeed an anarchist alternative. And our our position is an eco-anarchist one, not an eco-socialist one. And don't be scared of the term anarchist because it does stand for a lot of things that we're not for, but we're using it in the classic sense of of a highly participatory self-governing community, uh, one in which things like spontaneity, the good citizens walking around doing good things automatically and the key anarchist concept and principle is to avoid domination, to avoid power relations. Now, I think you can see when you think back to what I was saying about communities that are self-governing, that is the essential principle in the in, in the way that we're saying we have to go. Those town meetings are thoroughly participatory. If you don't like the term anarchism, just talk about participatory government. So. I'm hoping that we get people to see that drawing attention to those kinds of more collectivist forms of self-government of communities, we take control of our own situation. That's where we need to focus the attention in our discussions as distinct from the lifestyle changes, which are, of course, obviously appropriate and desirable. Yeah, thanks for bringing it all together. You know, um, I think when people think of simplicity, um, there can be a bit of a degree of self-flagellation, like, am I doing enough? But, you know, since we're all in it together, things like, you know, citizens' assemblies and self-governing and the way we relate to each other, 
they're all part of the puzzle. When you look at the per capita output in modern society, so much of that is just trying to get to work and, you know, driving three hours a day to get to work and working in an industry that causes more pollution and more centralisation and more inequity. And I think that's um, a very good point. If people got together and self-managed an act of that, uh, it could be that, um, you know, the impact of the land goes down um, because it's not more and more people working under the thumb for less and less, <laughs> you know, people in isolation reaping all the benefits. Yeah, well, you mentioned a number of things there that um, I, I connect with the, the benefits and alter- alternatives that I've been into. I'm just uh, one I haven't said so much about is transport uh, on many fronts, which you just mentioned there. We not only avoid that two-hour-a-day commute to work and back driving, uh, but we also avoid greatly reducing the amount of trucks we need to bring food from distant farms and ships and air freight. I mean, they air freight fodder out of Africa to Europe to feed cattle in feedlots. Now, all of that nonsense we can completely eliminate. They um, they ship cod from Scotland to be gutted in China and and then packaged and shipped back to guess where? Yeah, Scotland. <laughs> All farcical stuff. Um, and then there's the holidays thing, the air travel uh, that we can avoid. So you can, in, in a number of areas, come almost completely eliminate the the resource costs and the environmental damage. There's a place in um, uh, Missouri called Dancing Rabbit Eco Village which is setting out to demonstrate these things. And they get by on something like 5 to 10% of the US average per capita resource use rate for fuel and electricity and so on. And the measures, the studies of quality of life in eco-villages, of course, finds that people enjoy life more than they, they do in the rat race. Um, I know you name-checked Paul Ehrlich uh, at the beginning of the interview, so I just wanted... I think the question on population is unavoidable in degrowth. I think it's just an obvious one to raise, even though, you know, everyone's very (laughs) emotionally charged with the issue either way. Um, Professor Ian Lowe said that population was uh, a crucial components to environmental movement but on its own isn't sufficient to to have the scale of change that that we need to address a lot of the um degrading impacts on on the environment um and it does i suppose beg the question if say we all uh, in australia reduced our consumption collective consumption by half and our population doubles to um, 40 million in 2050. Is there, is there a um, question of if population doesn't level off, then over the long term, there's a question of redundancy to lifestyle choices. Also, you know, if we're looking at the global south and rightfully wanting living standards to become more equal and raise, and is that possible to do in a country uh, such as Nigeria that is currently 200 million and expecting to be 400 million uh, in 2050? You know, can we, can Nigeria have the consumption of, you know, a more privileged society with double the population than it has now? So it's, Sorry, a lot of questions I've thrown there, but I'm just uh, any thoughts on the issue would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, population is obviously a huge issue in all this. One of Ehrlich's uh, many very important contributions was the the notion of the IPAT equation: I equals P by A by T. So, uh, impact equals population multiplied by affluence, like living standards by the type of tech, the type of technology you have. Now, population is obviously a huge source of our difficulties because we've got too many people trying to live too affluently. Now, I don't have much to say about population because I have 
it's not something I can 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 do anything about much. Um, it, it's obvious that the, the smaller the numbers, the better. And many people like Tim Flannery would say well, two billion might be, you know, quite enough for us to cope with. But I would stress that in that equation, the A factor is by far the most worrying one. The population of the world is likely to get to 10 billion by the end of the century, so it would probably increase by 20, 30%. That's bad enough. But the affluence factor, of course, is limitless. The conventional view, the growth economy view, sees no stop to the rise of consumption. So it's affluence we have to do focus our attention on most of all. And the way we do that is, as is so often the case in this discussion, not by stick, but it's by carrot. It's by it's not by saying you must stop doing this, this and this. It's by saying, hey, look, over here, there are more attractive things to do than what you're already doing. Yeah, thank you so much for that and your perspective on <laughs> that issue. And I think one, one of the big things that we're getting from this interview is that um, not to fear the drop of consumption because um, I think so much, um, there's so many people within the global north who are feeling very guilty about their current consumption patterns and yet at the same time really fear what consuming less looks like. And um, within the current framework of our society, um, you know, people on welfare earning $40 a day, I mean, currently within that, that pattern, that's what a sudden reduction in consumption looks like. So, um, but there's another way that it can look like within other systems and one in which we're relating to each other um, a lot better than what we are now. And personally, I'm really on board with you with eco-anarchism and I think um, uh, anarchism the meaning of that is very different from what people might have thought when by playing Sid Meier's Civilization, which is when I first came across the word as well. Yeah. Look, is there anything we haven't covered? No, I guess I just would like to end on a on an on an optimistic note. I do flip between optimism and pessimism. I do think we're going to go down into a period of great troubles, and there's a lot of literature on that. Um, they call it collapsology now, where and very serious people foresee the possible demise of Western civilization with the die-off of billions of people. Um, I don't, you know, have a clear idea what what's going to happen beyond the fact that I think the systems are breaking down on many fronts, um, and that I hope just changes us up to get active. And um, and get into that talking and spreading of ideas, especially to go back a few seconds to what you were saying about the the, the worry people have when they think all oh, uh, degrowth means going towards um, forty dollar a day poverty and homelessness. Now we just have to work hard to hit that on the head to to make sure whenever we get the chance to explain, as, as you said, that it's not that at all. It's about going to alternative ways which are materially simpler but uh, open up richness and quality of life for us. Uh, a lot of our material is out. The Simplicity in, uh, Institute in Melbourne, um, simplicityinstitute.org, lots of written material. And my page is the simplerway.info. Uh, lots of stuff there, summary accounts and uh, things like overviews of the Catalan initiative that uh, people can read. And certainly I'll provide all those links in the description of this episode. So um, I recommend everyone um, to check those out. A really great work. It's been hugely influential to me. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Love hearing, love reading your wisdom and love hearing your wisdom too. Thank you, Michael. Thanks a great deal for being into these sort of things.
You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcasts. I would like to give my huge thanks to Ted Trainer from the Simplicity Institute to take the time to talk with PGAP. You know, speaking with Ted made me deeply reflect on my last eight years in Melbourne. I was involved in many anarchists and local community projects, doing it ourselves, Gnomes Gardening Collective, Pepper Tree Place Community Garden. I also spent the last four years living in a rental home that tried to bring intentional living and some of the ideas of David Holmgren's retro-suburbia model into the fray. Many of these projects ebbed and flowed with so many positives and wins and yet with so many challenges and pitfalls as well. All the tropes such as personal capacity, conflict, miscommunication, lack of resources and the pressures of growth that took away so many private community gardens in which we are working on. After a decade of these ebbs and flows, I find myself backing away slightly. After all, I've just secured a lease in Albany and WA and looking to buy a quarter acre property there in today's extremely fair and forgiving property market. This is not mission improbable. (laughs) Before, I tried to live in practice by my morality and found the endless turmoil too much by this stage. So these days I'm retreating somewhat and hoping my attempted escape into self-owned housing security via the real estate market is imbalanced by my legacy and my current work in the environmental and post-growth spheres. Before, I tried to live in practice with my morality and found that the ongoing logistical and interpersonal turmoil was just a little too much. So, I only hope that on balance that my continued work in the environmental and post-growth spheres balances out, to some degree, my more conventional living choices. And that it just doesn't turn out that I'm another cynical codger selling out for the passage of time. At the very least, I'm looking forward to the possibility of tending to a garden that will never be mowed down by some beady eyed developer. And yet the challenges of intentional living, when overlapped against the rigours of modern day late stage capitalist living, cannot be overstated. I would like to think that simpler ways of living will come easier as a modern globalised market fades or collapses that we're not so overstretched between two worlds, or perhaps more pertinently, there will come a time when cooperating with our immediate neighbours becomes the only means of survival, as there will be no elsewhere to run to. I hope that by this stage that many of us can relearn the skills of cooperation, compromise and collective ownership that have become fragmented or even lost with industrialised civilization. I've said it before and I'll say it again, the behaviour change component is a crucial factor for these changes to work. Agree? Disagree? Loved this episode? Hated it? Fiercely neutral and undecided? Well, write to PGAP on the contact page and let your thoughts known. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast medium. Share this episode among your friends, families and networks and let's spearhead these crucial conversations forward as we teeter over the pier into the stormy waters below, wondering if indeed we will sink or swim. Till next time, till then.